When you were a kid, did your mother ever say, wait till your father gets home? Or your brother or your sister said, wait till dad gets home? Yeah, I know that it can be a double-edged thing that maybe you'll be happy when he gets home or maybe you'll be petrified when he gets home. Maybe you're excited for him to come home. Maybe you wish he'd never come home because you know you're going to get it. Well, in this second episode of our Revelation study, Revelation 1, 4 through 8, it's the picture that sets up the entire book of the Revelation when it, it reveals who Jesus is and then it says he's coming back. Not like... Uh, the Terminator, coming back. Oh, he's coming back in much more power and much more might. And people are either going to be very excited that he's come back, or people are going to be very, very sad that he comes back. And it all depends on if we've accepted him now. So we're going to look at chapter 1 of Revelation today, verse 4 through through 8 in Life 66's a study of Revelation. First, let me start by reading this passage to you. Revelation 1. Get out your Bible. Get out your notebook. Uh, verse 4 through 8 reads this way. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is, his faithful, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. What a powerful passage. What a powerful introduction. Uh, He's coming back. And we are in a crazy, crazy time of life right now in our country. I'm uh, in California, in our state. It's crazy. And there's thinking of, you know, can things get any worse? Can things get any better? Well, if you're a part of the church, you can see some dark days ahead, and you can see some uh, prophetic things starting to occur that we can read in Daniel and Matthew 24, and a lot of things here in the Revelation. The bottom line is, though, is that it's not going to last forever. Jesus is going to come back again. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fear. We don't have to be uh, frustrated. We don't have to um, you know, be stressed. He's going to come back. And I always like to think about, uh, you know, this whole life we live in, um, like a videotaped sporting event. If you videotape again, I always videotape because I don't, or, you know, DVR, because I don't want to watch all the commercials. And every now and then somebody will tell me the score of the game before I get a chance to see it. Well, then it of course takes all the tension out of watching that you can watch the game and it doesn't matter if your team is down by, you know, a ton of points and it doesn't look like they're going to come out of it. If you know the score at the end and you know that your team wins, you know that there's exciting times ahead and you don't stress. Well, the revelation tells us that the end is secured. Jesus is coming back and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. And all those with him are going to reign with him. So it doesn't matter how bad it gets now. It's just the middle of the game and we know the score at the end. So it's a powerful, powerful thought. And Revelation chapter 1, 4 to 8 gives us that. The uh, verse four to six 
gives us a description of the author who the letter is written to or the vision is written to, and then um, the warning or the announcement of Jesus coming back again. So let's jump in here. Verse number four, uh, John, John the Apostle, of course, is who we're talking about. Three times in the first chapter he's introduced, and then he's mentioned, he mentions himself again in the last chapter, chapter 28. Uh, this is John the Disciple. James's brother started out as a fisherman, wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's the last living apostle at the time of this writing. He's exiled on the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea, and this is written in about the mid-90s, first century. He's, it's write, written to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Well, who are these seven churches? Well, chapter 2 and 3 tell us that, that they're all listed there with a short uh, memo from Jesus to each of the seven churches. Now, when it talks about the province of Asia, we're talking about modern-day Turkey. If you look on your map, find the country of Turkey. All seven of these churches are located right there in that, in that country, and they are uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They're there all in chapter 2 and 3. Well, there are seven of them. Interesting, right? We talked last time about all the sevens. There's dozens and dozens of sevens in the book of the Revelation. And the seven is a number of completion. It's not, not God's number. It's not some you know uh, perfect perfection number. It's completion. And uh, so he's speaking to the church at large, and these seven churches are the representatives of the church at large. But it's what's strange is not necessarily the churches that are included, but the churches that are excluded. Like, where is the church at Rome? Where's the church in Jerusalem? Where's the church in Philippi or Colossae or Thessalonica? Uh, the churches listed are very obscure and very insignificant. Uh, only Ephesus is really um, addressed uh, in a New Testament letter of the seven. The rest, there's a mention of Laodicea, um, but they're just not the ones that you would think that would be listed. Uh, what's interesting, though, is they do represent the completion of the church, and each one of them has attributes that we'll find out in chapter 2 and 3 that are, are all relating to the church today. Well, John says, I'm, I'm the writer from John to the seven churches, uh, and grace and peace to you. If, you. if you look at the writings of the New Testament, grace and peace comes up a lot. Very, very familiar greeting, grace. Many can define grace using the letters of grace in an acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's an easy way to remember, and it's a pretty, pretty decent uh, uh, description or definition of grace. And peace, that's his shalom, it's his Sabbath rest, it's the peace of God. God's grace and God's peace be yours. From there, he jumps right into a description of, of the Trinity in verse 1, 4, and 5. Uh, it says, grace and peace to you from who, wa- who is, who was, who is to come, the seven spirits from around the throne, the faithful witness, the firstborn, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Take a guess on how many titles that are listed there. Yeah, you guessed it. There's seven. And in these seven titles, we have the three persons of the Trinity listed. Three addressing the Father, one addressing the Holy Spirit in the middle, and then three addressing uh, the Son at the end. God the Father being listed in the first three, who is, who was, and who is to come. The I am that I am, the one who is timeless, the one who is past, present, and future. 
the one who was in the beginning God, and the one who will be on the throne at the end. God the Father being spoken of as that eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits from around the throne, or in a, a different translation, it may say the sevenfold spirit. Again, seven, uh, referring to the, the completeness of the Holy Spirit. Interesting way to describe the Holy Spirit. Throughout Scripture, um, he, he, he's, he's the mysterious one, not in a weird, freaky kind of way, but just, you know, God has a name, Yahweh, the Son has a name, Jesus. The Holy Spirit has a description, not really a name. And uh, that continues throughout, that he's more described than he is titled. Uh, one of my favorite passages that, that aligns itself with this seven spirits from around the throne is Zechariah 4, 1 through 6, where it says, Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is awakened from his sleep. He asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see solid gold, a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. I asked the angel who talked to me, What are these, my lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. He said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He's describing the work of the Holy Spirit in this prophetic vision, and that this uh, seven lights with the seven lampstands, the seven channels, uh, is a representative of the power of the Spirit of God. So that number four description, the seven spirits from around the throne, is the Holy Spirit. Then God the Son, three descriptions of Jesus, the faithful witness Um, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of this earth. Uh, Jesus is those things. The faithful witness, uh, John 3.11 says, he speaks firsthand knowledge of what he has seen. John 18.37, before Pilate, when he says, I only speak what is truth. And as a matter of fact, this is why I was born into the world, to testify to the truth. Revelation 3.14 calls him the faithful and true witness that Jesus is the Word. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the faithful witness, revealing to us the nature of God. Number two is an interesting one, the firstborn from among the dead. That word firstborn, the Greek word is prototokos. I know it's kind of a fun word to say. I like to say it, prototokos. And uh, it speaks of this uh, concept of primogenitor, which means the firstborn son has all the rights and authority of the Father. Now, he's the firstborn from among the dead. Yes, the first and only one by his own power to raise from the dead. Uh, but in that, he's the firstborn from among the dead. Therefore, he has all of the rights and authority of the eternal one, the eternal God. And it's a powerful picture. We see this again in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, when it says he's the firstborn over all creation. All things were created by him. Fascinating, right? How can he be the firstborn over creation and all things being created by him? Because the firstborn doesn't mean born like a baby is born. It means he's the Jesus, the son of God on earth, has the right of, of a primogenitor. He is the one who is here on earth with all of the authority, all of the um, power, all of the, all of the sovereignty of the father. It's more of his position rather than, you know, like a baby is born to, to a parent. Many other scriptures refer to this. Psalm 89, 27 uh, talks about the appointed firstborn, the most exalted of kings. Hebrews 1, 6, 
let the first uh, the firstborn let the angels worship him Romans eight twenty nine the firstborn from among many brethren the firstborn speaking of his position uh, that the only one to rise from the dead therefore the first and having all the rights and authority of the Father number three uh, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth uh, the ruler of all that God is the Father over. This is more of a millennial title because right now Satan has been given the rulership uh, by permission, by God, uh, over the kings of the earth. But there's going to be a day very soon when he will be removed from power and Jesus Christ will take his rightful place as ruler of the kings of this earth. So if you look at those descriptions in um, in verse 4, you had the first three referring to God the Father, the, set, the fourth one referring to the Holy Spirit, and the last three referring to Jesus Christ with seven of them. Um, it's kind of re- it comes to draws to mind also the seven feasts of the nation of Israel, where you have f- three feasts in the fall, uh, one in the summer, and three at the end. And uh, it's interesting that at the first three um, have God sacrificing his son with the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, and the Feast of First Fruits. The middle one is representative of the day of Pentecost when, the, when the, uh, the harvest is brought in on that day and the Holy Spirit was given on that day of Pentecost with the last three being the return, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Booths, the Feast uh, uh, or Day of Atonement. And that refers to Jesus's return. So it's interesting how these three, seven titles very closely mirror the seven feasts of Israel. Well, going into... Uh, more of his description, five, the second part of verse 5, uh, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Of course, he loves us. Now notice the tense there. It's not he loved us or he's going to love. He loves us. That's present tense. That's continuous love. Of course, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. He loves us now. And this is not passive emotion. This is aggressive action. He loves us, so he's freed us from our sins by his blood. And I love the tense there too. He loves us now. He freed us. That's past tense. It's done. The work is done once and for all. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ right now, (coughs) excuse me, you are freed from your sins. It is a done work and you are loved by him right now, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going to do tomorrow. He loves you now. He will always love you because your sins have been removed, washed, You know, the worst kind of bondage is that which convinces a person that they're actually free when they're not. How great a bondage is it if a person thinks when they're smugly wrapped in their sinful chains, headed for death, that they're walking in absolute freedom. And you know, most of the world thinks that today. "Ah, I'm good. I got no worries. I got no problems. Yeah, you know, life can be tough sometimes, but hey, I make my own mind. I'm free. Don't even realize that they're bound and they're headed for certain death. At the same time, sometimes Christians feel that they're bound when they're free, bound by this habit or this thought or this uh, persecution or this problem. Listen, we're set free. We have been released and we need to live in that release. The Lamb of God has shed his blood. This Lamb is mentioned 28 times in the book of the Revelation. There's a lot about the sacrifice of Jesus in the Revelation. He has set us free. He has bought us out, set it, freed us by his blood. That word freed, he, he's bought us out. Like when you pay the price uh, of buying a person out of a possession, 
that they hold. Say if you co-own something, you're going to buy them out and you're going to take possession of what they formerly did. Well, we have been taken possession of by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, uh, verse 6. Exodus 19.6 calls us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, quoted again in 1 Peter 2.9, that if you're a Christian today, you are royalty. You're the king's son. You are... You are a kingdom together with the rest of the believers. You can't live your Christian life by yourself. We're a kingdom together. We are designed to be together. But we're kings. We're priests. The priests under the old law had access to the presence of God. You now have access to the presence of God because Jesus has loved you and set you free from your sins by his blood and made you into a kingdom, made you into a priest, that you have access to him. Now, the other part of a priest is that he was a go-between between man and God. And we have been given the mandate to go and make disciples, to, um, to spread the word, to uh, share Jesus with everybody and anybody we can. That's our job. That's our mandate. So we're the kingdom. We know who we belong to. We know who we are. And we've been given the ministry of being a priest to have the, be able to go into the presence of God and to... Uh, be a bridge between people and the and 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 God. You know, in my office when the kids were young, I'd be into studying in my church office. And you know, everybody else has to knock. Everybody else had to make an appointment. Not my kids. They could barge in anytime they want. They're my kids. They have access. Today know that you have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And verse six it says, To him be glory and power forever and ever. This is the start of this praise throughout the book of the Revelation. In verse 1 through 6, it says, uh, glory and power. Uh, in uh, 4.11, glory, honor, and power. In uh, verse 5.13, blessing, honor, glory, and power. And then in chapter 7, verse 12, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. It's this growing praise, this growing uh, honor given to Christ. And when we finally get to the conclusion in chapter 7, how many descriptions are there? Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might. Yeah, of course, there's seven of them. Uh, so you know, what, a, what a thunderous um, uh, uh, bit of praise for our Lord and Savior. And then we get to verse 7 and 8, this powerful passage of, look, he's coming again. He's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the people of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And then Jesus speaks, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty, uh, echoing that same uh, description of God the Father earlier in verse 4. Jesus speaks of that about himself because he truly is. Uh, he is God, sovereign. He is God, powerful. He is the first and the last. Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. And he is coming again. Verse 7 says, look, he's coming in the clouds. This uh, idea is first seen in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And then again, we see it in Mark and in Matthew. The king is going to come again. And when he comes it's not going to be some secret little nobody noticed type of thing. He's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, verse 7 says. Even those who pierced him, even those those who have passed away before, they're going to see the return of the king. 
not some secret thing. Every eye will see him. And and maybe back, you know, a couple of centuries ago, this was a very strange thing to 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 think about. That every eye, how can every eye on the on the planet see him? Well, today it's very very easy to think that, right? When we we all see across the globe on our news channels everything that happens over the over the earth, everybody's going to see him come. There's going to be no more secrets, no more um, rebellion. Well, there'll be still be some rebellion. Uh, but Jesus will squelch that. There's going to be no more guessing, no more when's he going to come. He's coming, and he's coming in force, and everybody's going to see him. No more secret agendas. Those who wait anxiously for him, they're going to be excited. But to those who refused him, they're going to be grieving. They're going to be scared to death. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grief and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. People of the world are going to look at him and they're going to say to themselves, oh no, it was true. I can't believe it's happening now. The one they mocked, the one they ignored, the one they rejected, the one they thought was nonsense, the one they thought was a myth, the one they thought was a crutch for just weak people who needed a religion, the one that they mocked as a historical figure, but but just a man. This same Jesus who rose in the clouds in Acts chapter 1 is going to return again through the clouds, as, as t- told to us in Revelation chapter 1. And he's going to come in power. The Alpha and Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end, this one is coming back again. The Almighty. He is the I Am, the Almighty God, the ruler over the kings of the earth, the ruler over every nation, the ruler over every king, the ruler over every politician, the ruler over Congress, the ruler over the Senate, the ruler over every political party. This Jesus is coming back again. Now, let's not mistake, this father doesn't delight in punishing his children. When he comes back again, he's coming to judge. And he's coming to take his throne. But he's not coming rejoicing that so many would perish. Second Peter chapter 3 said he's taking a long time in coming because he's not willing that any should perish. We should wait eagerly for the Lord to come back, but we should not be eager for people to miss out. If you're a part of the church today, we can look forward to Jesus' coming, but we truly have to get busy because we want him to come back for more, for more people, for more of his lost children. Some of you may be living in rebellion against God today. You may be thinking you're calling your own shots, you're doing it your own way. Listen, don't be deceived into thinking everything's fine. It's not fine. One day Jesus is going to return. It's a fact. We will see it come, whether it's through the eyes of someone living on on this planet or whether it's through the eyes of someone who's already passed, we will see him come, and it will be a glorious day, or it will be a dreadful day. Which are you? Are you excited to see him come back? Or would you be petrified that he's finally come back? I hope you'll be excited. I hope you'll be waiting in anticipation, not mourning when he returns. I know I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to throw my arms around my Savior and praise him for this great salvation he's given me. But there's going to be some people who will not be so happy. Philippians chapter 2 says, 
everybody will bow before the name of Jesus. Some will bow in worship. Some will bow in fear. I'm going to bow before my Savior because I'm glad to see him. I hope you are too. Good to be with you today. We'll jump into chapter 1, verse 9 and following in our next episode. Until then, this is Pastor Greg, Life 66. Talk to you soon. Let's be ready to meet our Lord. Take care.